you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshack True Crime. This is the Springfield 3 series, episode 3, The Flashback. The three missing woman case turns 10. So, on the decade anniversary, Chris Herzog wrote an anniversary report for 2002. It is the most in-detail breakdown of the Springfield 3 case of the publicly known info. Before we go down all of these avenues, we will do this overview. I am, of course, your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. And if you like the podcast, make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell notification for updates. And if you like the podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Check the link in the description. And you can check out all our social media sites, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, and Patreon in the description. Okay, let's get down to it. So Johnny is not quite as familiar with this case as Maxwell and I. Maxwell's got all the details. He's always on the ball. He can keep track of every name, detail, location, time. If you have a question, just ask Maxwell. <laughs> so have you heard of this case before or no, Johnny? No, nah, I never heard of it. Yeah, it's it's listed as one of the most mysterious cold cases in the U.S. ever because it's very difficult for three people to vanish into thin air. You know, one person goes missing fairly often, unfortunately, but pe and people are kind of almost used to it. I mean, a lot of true crime and cold cases and disappearances. It's usually one person, occasionally two. Very rarely is it three. Can you think of another case where there were three, Maxwell? No, this is the only one I, I know of. Yeah, it's very difficult to subdue, kidnap, kill three people. It's tough. Unless it's a plane and then they just go missing, but that's like <laughs> a plane crash. Yeah, plane crash. So three female females got went missing. Yes, and at the same time they are all connected. That's for sure. That they went missing at the same time. Yeah. Well, nothing is for sure on Mind Shock. No, it what's appears the theory though. What? There's a bunch of different theories. Some people believe that, uh, there's a lot of conflicting information here as well. So I'm going to go over this Herzog article, which is pretty much the most in-depth, best article on this case. And then we will mull over exactly the different theories and go into more detail. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Ready. Okay. So... Of course, this happened in Springfield, Missouri. The three missing woman case is turning 20 this week, so we're looking back on our previous coverage of the mystery. After scouring the archives, we found Chris Herzog's 10-year anniversary report from 2002. Got ready that day with Stacy, recalled Janelle Kirby in 2002. Then we rode together to graduation and met everybody there. It was a great day. Kirby graduated with Stacy McCall and Susie Streeter from Kickapoo High School. As we all know, the girls attended a late night party with Janelle and others. I wish I would have made them stay. If I could have kept them there, none of this would have happened. Springfield police say sometime about 2 a.m., the two girls came back to this house at 1717 East Delmar, the home of Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter's mother. And that's where and when the mystery begins. 
from 2.30 in the morning when they should have arrived home until around 6 o'clock the next morning, something happened, recalls former Webster County Sheriff Ron Warsham. We don't have a clue. Yeah, that's terribly frustrating. In the summer of 1992, Warsham was the assistant police chief in Springfield. Quite frankly, it looked like they'd just been beamed up because there was nothing out of place in the house. None of them can I imagine them going willingly, added Kirby. Yet there was no sign of a struggle. The house was perfect when we went in there. Kirby says she and her boyfriend made their way to the house later on Sunday morning. The four had planned a trip to Branson. Cheryl's bed had been slept in. It looked like Susie's bed they'd gotten into, added Kirby. They washed their faces. They'd taken their jewelry off. Their purses were there. But the three women were gone. Later that night, the McCalls and others gathered at the home on Delmar and called police. When we reported them missing, I didn't even call 911, said Janice McCall, Stacy's mother. I really thought they were going to walk in any time. Janice McCall says it was the first time she considered the possibility that something ominous had happened. What followed in the next few weeks was a community effort to find out the truth. Police detectives canvassed the area. Missing posters and billboards were up around Springfield, even pleas for help to the public. In helicopters and on foot, the search began. We waded creeks, climbed bluffs, recalled David Juan. We went through fields of grass that were over our heads. We walked ditches. But Juan and other Springfield police officers found nothing. Even with volunteers and reserve officers, recruits, and teams from other cities, the trail was cold. The only solid leads, one composite drawing of a bearded man, the only official suspect, and the sighting from multiple sources of a green van. So once again, we have a vehicle, a green van that multiple people have seen. Very mysterious. We went over the detail in the, pre the details in the previous episodes. We'll go over it again in a little bit. But files inside the Springfield Police Department contain every lead detectives ever had. More than 5,000 altogether. It's too bad they don't have Maxwell working on the case. He'd be, he'd be able to just recite them all from memory. But... Not one of them brought detectives any closer to finding out what happened. Everyone we checked out turned out to be negative, added Warsham. I mean, there was nothing there, full of dead ends. It's been that way for 10 years now. It's still a case that bothers you, added Juan, because you feel like no matter what you did, you hit dead ends all along. In the years since the abductions, many theories as to what happened that summer night have been pondered. From a stranger abduction to involvement of a relative, to a serial killer stalking Cheryl Levitt. But the only ones who know for sure haven't been seen since 1992. It seems like yesterday, seems like yesterday, said McCall, except for you realize what all has passed. But it, you know, time just in one way stands still. Police detectives Herzog talked to for this story say they believe there is at least one person out there with information that could crack this case and help find the missing woman. On the door of Bill Stokes' one-chair barbershop hangs a faded yellow poster with the faces of three Springfield women, missing the bold headline screams. During the summer of 1992, when Stokes taped up the sign in his Marshfield shop, he made a vow to himself. I said I wasn't going to take that down until they solved the case, he said. I was hoping they would solve it. Now I think it will probably just rot 
off the wall. The barbershop poster hangs like dozens of others across the Ozarks, yellow, yellowed, and tattered. They remind us of the three women who vanished from a small south-central Springfield home on a clear June morning. Gone were Cheryl Levitt, 47, her daughter, Susie Streeter, 19, and Susie's friend, Stacy McCall, 18. Just hours before, the three attended the Kickapoo High School graduation, where the girls smiled for ceremonial pictures and finalized plans for a night of partying. First, they hit a friend's party in Battlefield, then hopped to another one in Springfield. But by then, their plans for the night changed. They wouldn't drive to Branson and stay in a hotel or even spend the night at a friend's house. Streeter had a new king-sized waterbed, a graduation present from her mom. So in the early morning hours of June 7th, they went to the tidy, modest home at 1717 East Delmar Street, which Levitt had purchased two months earlier. And that's where the mystery begins. Something happened inside the home between 2.30 a.m. when police speculate the girls arrived at the Streeter home and 8 a.m. when a friend of the girls, Janelle Kirby, called to determine what time they would meet to go to the Whitewater theme park in Branson. To this day, police do not have a clear picture of what happened. They've logged 5,200 tips, given countless polygraphs to potential suspects, friends, and family members. Searched woods and fields throughout the Ozarks and followed leads into 21 states. They really did their homework on this case. Quite the opposite of the Moramur case, right, Maxwell? Yeah. The house told them little. There were no signs of a struggle, no clues of a crime, nothing that screamed something had gone terribly wrong. The only thing unusual about this house was that three women were missing from it, says retired Springfield Police Captain Tony Glenn. You had this feeling as you looked around that something was missing, that something had to be missing, but there wasn't just them. Each woman had a car, and all three vehicles were left in the driveway. Levitt's blue Corsica was parked in the carport. Streeter's red Ford Escort sat in the circle drive with McCall's Toyota Corolla right behind. Keys to the vehicles were found inside the unlocked house. The three purses were piled together at the foot of the steps leading into Susie's sunken bedroom. Though the mother and daughter were chain smokers, Levitt and Streeter left their cigarettes behind. An undisturbed graduation cake was waiting in the refrigerator. It was apparent the woman had gotten ready for bed. Each had washed off makeup and tossed a damp cloth in the hamper. Jewelry was left on the wash basin. McCall had neatly folded her flowered shorts, tucking jewelry into the pockets, and placed them on her sandals besides Streeter's waterbed. Police believe she left the home wearing only a t-shirt and panties. Yet how she and the other women left is what baffles police, family, and friends. Police cling to the idea that a single man could have used a ruse. Something as simple as posing as a utility worker warning of a bogus gas leak in the neighborhood to lure them out. While Ozarkers long have theorized that this crime was the work of more than one person, authorities say it could have been carried out by one man. If other people were involved in what's believed to be a kidnapping and triple murder, police say surely someone would have broken their silence of 10 years. Their main suspect is a Texas inmate, 42-year-old Robert Craig Cox. He was convicted of killing a 19-year-old Florida woman, 
who was somehow intercepted while driving home from work at Disney World one night in 1978. Cox, who lived in Springfield the summer of 1992, walked away from death row in 1989 after the Florida Supreme Court said the jury didn't have enough evidence to convict him. Through the years, Cox has toyed with the Springfield police, saying he knows the women are dead and that they're buried near the city. Having discovered that Cox lied about his alibi on the morning of June 7, 1992, officials are skeptical about his claims. Cox declined to be interviewed by the news leader, but in recent letters to the newspaper, he acknowledges police consider him a suspect and that 10 years ago, he worked as a utility locator in South Central Springfield. So what do we think so far? We we actually listened to a clip of Robert Craig Cox talking about it. He seems very disjointed, insane. I don't know if we could trust what he says. What do you think, Maxwell? About what, Robert Cox? Yeah, what'd you think about him when we went over him in the previous episodes? Yeah, I don't remember. What a shocker. I don't I don't remember. Um what what was he uh, what was he again? <laughs> I just said. Uh well, so, he, he, so did they uh, ever check to see like where he said he buried them? Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. There was actually a hospital who hap- that happens to be called Cox Hospital. No relation. <laughs> Why are there so many coincidences in all these cases? His middle name is Avery? <laughs> no, it is not. His middle name is Craig. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. He also seems to refrain from giving real details, but we'll get into this later. In our next episode, we'll do a full suspect breakdown, and there's guys in prison that he knew who had information, and he might have heard information from them. So he kind of entered, and they might have not done it either. They might have known somebody else who had done it. There's a lot of shady people living in this area. Okay, moving on. A summer jolt. In the summer of 1992, teenagers were tiring of tall hair. Hoop earrings were hot. Metallica was racing up the charts, and the internet was just coming on strong. The story shocked Springfield out of the comfort zone that normally accompanies slow summer days. A massive search was launched. Police and volunteers rode horses and walked through fields of tall grass on the southwest side of town where Chesterfield Village now stands. Citizens began locking their doors without fail. Neighbors vowed to check on one another. In churches and homes throughout the Ozarks people prayed that someone saw something, anything that could help police solve the mystery on East Delmar. Within days, more than 20,000 posters of the missing woman were printed and then plastered on telephone poles in storefront windows, restaurants, and truck stops. With nothing else to go on, law enforcement agencies dug up anthills that callers thought could be fresh graves. They chased circling buzzards, hoping to find a clue. The Springfield Police Department moved immediately to take the case national, believing that if the disappearance was a serial crime, someone in another state could hold the answer. By the end of the first week, faces of the missing woman appeared on America's Most Wanted, sparking 29 calls from across the nation. Another news program, 48 Hours, shadowed local police for weeks, shooting pictures of searches, polygraphs, and officers sifting through leads. By the way, this is one of the most insane thing I've, things I've ever seen. If you've seen the news footage of that, like this documentary crew was actually videotaping a polygraph of a suspect before police even gave information to the public. It was completely insane. Hmm. And they also revealed certain information about sightings of these three women, possibly. 
at different places that have since disappeared from all news reports. They were deemed not credible. Once again, I postulate, what if they were credible and it was them? We have to consider their veracity as well. We'll get into those later. None ever led to a conclusive piece of evidence. A decade later, detectives who worked one of the largest investigations in Ozark's history are haunted by a case they couldn't crack. It's hard to be known for something you didn't do as opposed to something you did, says retired Sergeant David Asher, who led the investigation in the early days. I think of it all the time. I want it to be solved. I want it for Janice and Stu McCall, the Streeters, the police department. I want it for the community. I think they need it. Though the urgency to find these women has faded through the years, the pain for the families runs as deep as it did in 1992. Janice and Stu McCall created an organization to help families whose loved ones are missing. They hold out, hope their daughter could one day be found, vowing not to declare her dead until investigators find her remains. I want them to find my daughter, Janice McCall says intently. Pictures of Stacy scattered around the sofa in her suburban Springfield home. You can go through so much, but you still want an answer. For them not to give us an answer, that was difficult. Levitt and Streeter have already been declared dead in court. Their family took that step at the five-year mark. Still, the sadness has gotten stronger, says Debbie Schwartz, Levitt's sister. It doesn't feel like 10 years, Swartz says. The pain feels fresh and new. It's amazing it can feel so new after so long. I'm sure it will be that way until my dying day. A fresh set of eyes. The case, wildly viewed as being mishandled during the first year by a micromanaging police chief, does that sound familiar? Has gone cold in the mid-1990s. No leads looked promising. At the five-year anniversary, the Springfield Police Department announced that it couldn't justify the money and manpower to continue working it even on a part-time basis. So the mystery of the missing woman went unattended, except for incoming leads. If the tips looked viable, they were checked. If not, they just went in the pile. But last year, when Major Stephen James took over the detective division, the four-drawer filing cabinet that holds thousands of fizzled leads was reopened. This guy's name is I. James E. James, wanted to take a fresh look at cold cases, and he wanted the work to begin with the missing women. A young detective, 28-year-old Corporal Greg Higdon, a college freshman the year the woman disappeared, accepted the assignment and immediately began rifling through the old reports and leads. The idea, says I. James, was to bring in a fresh set of eyes. He can just look at the facts, says Janice McCall, who's encouraged that the case has been reopened. He doesn't even ask the officers what happened back then. He only asks the questions he wants answers to. That may be just what we need. Higdon's high energy level and determination is coupled with the investigative skills of Corporal Alan Neal, considered one of the department's best investigators. So, hope, which this investigation hasn't had since the early days, is alive again. Maybe they'll see something we missed, Asher says. Maybe they will. That's interesting. A police officer who doesn't admit he's wrong or missed anything is hoping that other people will find what he missed. That's interesting. Maybe he actually wants the case solved, unlike some of these other cases we're following. <laughs> One lead that surfaced two weeks into the investigation is keeping detectives busy today. Robert Craig Cox. Though family members of the three women say authorities have a list of ten people they haven't ruled out, 
and we'll be getting into who those people are, Cox jumps to the top. Police first interviewed Cox in June 1992, but when he produced what cops thought was a rock-solid alibi, attending church with his girlfriend on the morning the woman disappeared, they focused on other people and leads. Then, Cox, who was still free after walking away from death row, was arrested in Texas for robbery. He already had a history of burglary, kidnapping, and murder. Springfield in Springfield officers interviewed him, and the game began. Like Ted Bundy, the infamous rapist and murderer Cox met in Stark, Florida prison, Cox told police for them to think he knew something, but not enough to incriminate himself. He told them he knew the women were dead and that they were buried near Springfield. Smirking, he refused to say more. In front of a Greene County grand jury, Cox's former girlfriend admitted she lied to police about his alibi on the morning of June 7, 1992. Cox really wasn't at church with her, she said. He had called her and asked her to lie to police for him. Learning that, Springfield police twice returned to Texas to interview Cox but did not obtain enough for an indictment. We have to examine everything, try to corroborate statements, Sergeant Mike Owen says, we have to weigh it on the scale and see what it means. In a letter to the newsleader last month, Cox says that in the summer of 1992, he worked as a locator at SMNP Conduit, Inc., a Springfield company that locates and marks underground utilities. I have done locates all over Springfield, Cox wrote. I have done work in the area of the house where the abduction occurred. That's interesting. He's admitting that he worked right next to where they went, where they disappeared. I haven't, I actually hadn't heard that previously until reading this. That's pretty interesting. Why would he incriminate himself like that? Maxwell, any thoughts? So this is the Cox guy? Yeah. So he, he's the one that says he did it, right? Or, no, uh, he says he knows they're dead, but he never said he did but it. But he says he knows where they were buried? I don't know if he gave a specific. He said in the general area. Next to the city or whatever. Well, I think he also changed his story a couple times. But he admitted... But he said that's where they disappeared? So, isn't that what you just said? He said he worked in the area, area. Of, the, of the house where the abduction occurred. So, so they were taken from the house. Known, well, yeah, suppo- that's okay. the, the official story is that they were taken from the house. Okay. Now, that's disputed by some people, and there's different theories that we'll go into. But he admitted that he worked in the air of the house. Now, in a previous podcast, Maxwell and I actually talked about it. It'd be interesting to know if there was any corroboration of this. Now, he corroborated this himself. I'm not sure if they, there was a third-party corroboration of it, so the employer would have to verify this information. Otherwise, it's just him talking. But that's interesting. Years ago, Cox would say that he did underground locating jobs everywhere. He couldn't remember if he did them in the neighborhood of East Delmar. So once again, we have his story changing multiple times. So he couldn't remember before, and now he does? Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Owen says detectives can't ignore things about Cox's past or the comments he's made, but the sergeant also says there are other people and tips, especially a fresh one from a few months ago, that look promising. All our eggs are not in Cox's basket, Owen says. We're still looking at a lot of different people. If tomorrow we had a lead and solved this case and it wasn't Cox, I wouldn't be surprised. Nonetheless, Cox has been a suspect since the early days, since police got a call from Florida from a family that knew exactly what the McCalls and Streeters were going through. Another grieving family. Days after the women were reported missing, Dorothy Zellers, 
was alone in her Dunnellan, Florida home and decided to watch some television. She was captivated by pictures of three pretty women flashing on the screen, and she had listened hard as commenters explained they had vanished from a home in Springfield, Missouri. Dorothy thought of her own daughter, Sharon, who at 19 was fun and full of life when she was raped and killed. As she continued watching the program, all Dorothy Zellers could think about was the man who had been convicted of killing her daughter in late 1978. The Florida Supreme Court had released the man, Cox, from death row less than three years earlier, and after being paroled from a California prison for kidnapping, he had moved back home with his parents. I guess they were cool with all his activities? <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of weird. Well, well, I don't know. It's their parents. I don't know. They... It's hard to reject your own kid, I think. Well, isn't isn't the normal stigma is usually like the mother can always forgive the son, but how often does a father cover for a son who's a murderer? Usually, I mean, not that they would turn them in, but it's usually the mom that's kind of like, my boy can do no wrong, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the usual stigma. But to have both parents together, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, if they were that much of a Christian family and they just believed in forgiveness, I don't know who the parents or who they were, but I don't know how often that happens. Like a convicted murderer, rapist, burglar just moves back home with his parents. It's like, yeah, I've been busy a while. don't have too much money. Can I move back? Like, I've been in prison for a while. Well, maybe they, weird. he was rehabilitated. Rehabilitated? Yeah. The prison system works? Um, that's an interesting I don't know. point. I don't know. If they believe just, in the prison system yeah. and that he, he is rehabilitated. That, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He lived in Missouri Springfield, in Springfield, Missouri. I just knew it was him. I just knew it, Zeller said more than a week ago in a telephone interview from her Florida home. I said to myself, Cox did this. As soon as her husband Charles and son Steve returned from a trip to Tallahassee, she told them about the missing woman in Missouri. I remember her saying to me, it's really coincidental Cox is there son steve recalls i called the springfield police department and told them cox is living there they knew nothing about cox what police didn't know the zellers did that's why for 10 years they've often wondered if cheryl and susie and stacy were ever found it's always been in the back of our minds what happened to these women steve zeller says i feel so bad for the families as bad as our situation is at least sharon was found to not know where they are or where they were I can't imagine. Sharon was a happy 19-year-old who wasn't ready for college but loved working at Walt Disney World's Frontierland Trading Post gift shop. She wasn't supposed to work December 30th, 1978, but when someone called in sick, she agreed to go in. She left the park at 10 p.m. She never came home, Dorothy Zeller says. We called Disney World. My husband drove the road back and forth trying to find her along the path. We had everyone out looking. Five days later, they found their daughter's badly beaten body stuffed in a sewer. The sewer was less than 350 feet from the motel where Cox, 19 at the time, was staying while on vacation with his parents. Wow, on vacation. Within days, Cox, a highly regarded army ranger, this guy's had training, was interviewed. It would be 10 years before the Zellers would get to see him in court. It took that long for prosecutors to get a solid case on the man who, a year after Sharon Zeller was killed, was named Soldier of the Year. This was the 70s? 78. Yeah. Okay. 
Testimony at his weekend-long trial would show Cox returned to the motel room that night bleeding from his mouth. An inch of his tongue was gone. The Zellers believe Sharon bit it off. She fought for her life, Dorothy Zeller says. Police also had a print in Sharon's car matching a military boot. Cox wore military boots. Blood and hair samples were consistent with Cox. Wait, wait, who bit, who bit whose tongue? Like, the the victim itself bit his own tongue? Or so, someone else? Well, who else or would who, have bit it? Who have bit it? Who wait, else who is, whose tongue it? was missing? Cox's. Cox's tongue was missing? Yes. He, uh, an inch wait, of wait, his hold tongue. On. Is, wait, wait, hold on. Is he dead? No. So his tongue is missing right now. Well, it was at the time. I don't know how they did. They an inch of his tongue. That's an inch of his tongue. tongue. Yeah. That's they a lot of tongue. Have... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Wait, can he talk? Can he? Like, yeah. Can he... I just we we listened to his interview. Oh shit! <laughs> does he does he sound weird or like? I mean, no weirder than most psychotics. I mean, I, I think your tongue grows back. <laughs> I don't. <know. laughs> does it like your liver? Know. Your liver liver grows back. Yeah, you didn't know that. Wait. If okay. you if you cut less than half of the liver off, it'll grow back. Wait, so wait, if, who, you, if wait. you take fifty one percent, it doesn't. Okay, not sure about fifty, but forty nine, it'll grow back. <laughs> wait, how did they know he, his tongue was missing? Okay, so a nurse told jurors that Cox couldn't have bitten his own tongue off in a fight, as he claimed, because of the way the teeth came down on the tongue, the bite had to have come from another person. She testified, so he obviously went for treatment. Damn. Prosecutors got a conviction and a death penalty verdict. But while Cox was on death row, Florida's Supreme Court decided the jury of 12 didn't have enough evidence to convict him. He was freed. The Zellers were devastated, angry at the justices who had freed the man they believed Sharon attempted to fight off that December night. We told them he would kill again, Steve Zeller says. That's why he made it his personal duty to keep track of Cox, frequently calling the California prison his Springfield parole officer and now jail officials in Texas. Wherever Cox goes or whatever happens to him, Steve will always know. <laughs> Ever vigilant. Like he knew that Cox was in Springfield on June seventh, 1992. I want to keep tabs on him, Steve Zeller says. I want him to know I'm watching. So what do we think about this? So Cox, it seems to be pr- pretty much open and shut that he did kill the Zeller's girl. Oh, she did die? Yeah, raped and murdered. Her body, oh, okay. her beaten body stuffed beaten. in, okay. dropped in the, in the sewer, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Look at so, Maxwell paying attention. I yeah, thought but, maybe but, she could have been uh, alive. Okay. okay, how long did he... <sighs> it makes more is sense he, now. Is he, so he's in jail right now, right? Okay. But he is in jail now for doing that? For burglary, I believe. Oh, yeah, because he got off on the other thing. Yeah, then he went to prison for something else, and then he went to... He's got a long criminal record. Okay, I mean, there's a high chance that he did this, then. There's quite a few problems with with him and doing it, alibis. It's possible, but there were witnesses who saw other people as well. There were testimonies, rumors, and there's a lot of shady circumstances with her friends that we didn't even talk about yet. Like Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend, who showed up at the house, and there was like a broken lamp, and they swept it up, and eighteen people were all over there, and then they received phone calls as well, and there was also some kind of prank caller, and the phone calls happened right when they returned to the house several hours later. The whole situation is very, very weird, and their parties that they visited, where people might have saw them, was very, very weird. 
So it's not quite so simple with Cox. And then he just stopped talking. So I think people who are deeply researching this case believe that Cox might have just overheard something from another inmate who may or may not have been lying. And But Cox does have some strange connection with other shady people in, this, in the area. And we're going to go over that. Also, what we didn't mention yet, well, the article will probably mention if it doesn't, I'll get into Susie Streeter and how she was going to testify against an ex-boyfriend who were grave robbers. Uh, I remember that. And, yeah, the mother was the one that told her to testify and was possibly going to testify herself. And this has nothing to do with Cox. Yeah. So that's why it's not quite so open and shut, Johnny. But, yes, it's possible he could have done it, but there's a lot of coincidence in this case that we didn't even get to. A search for the truth. Springfield police have checked sewers across Springfield. They've also searched places known to Cox. They can't ignore the story of Sharon Zellers or that a jury of 12 believed Cox was the one who killed Sharon and stuffed her in a sewer. Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall were driving home just like Sharon. They were young, with long hair, just like Sharon. Levitt's dad, Jim Williams, died in 1997. He died believing Cox killed his daughter and granddaughter. He told me, I'm sure that's the guy. I just don't know if they'll be able to prove it, says Cliff Williams, Levitt's uncle. Cliff Williams says the way Cox smiles as he talks about the case and how he plays with the police has convinced many family members that he holds the answers. And just a quick aside on that, if you're some kind of psychotic criminal serial killer and you're bored in prison and you overheard something from another inmate or you just know about the case and you got nothing better to do, wouldn't you taunt police just as a means of entertainment? Like, how does that There's prove no you're guilty? There's no chance of him getting out, though. I'm not sure about the exact details. I think he's just screwing around. So he could be screwing around because he did it, or he could be screwing around because he's bored and he didn't do it, right? Like screwing around like that for a psychotic, that doesn't, does that mean he's guilty? I I wouldn't And then he's in in jail also because of burglary? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, so like, why is he in for But so keep long? in mind that's a very strange abduction, right? Because their purses were left with money in them. I mean, if you're a criminal and you're like, wouldn't you just grab the purse? I mean, free money. You're you're abducting and killing people. Are you gonna leave their purses lined up neatly? Maybe there's it was a done lot on of purpose. Like to confuse people, but well, at least Maybe. take the cash out. I mean, what? It takes like ten seconds. Like, if it, look at the time it takes to line up the purses. I guess he and, didn't really. The person didn't really care about money. They just yeah, really wanted to yeah, kill some yeah, some girls. That yeah, yeah. That, that gets them off. And also, like, if you bring the purses with you, it it logistically logistically is harder. But why don't you like, just bury them with the body? Where's the bodies? Uh, and isn't it I guess people... I, what I mean exactly. Like, why bury purses? That's more things to carry. Like, you're gonna have a. a yeah, just uh, pull the cash your out. You're right. Just pull you're the, ca- the body. Yeah, just pull pull the cash out. Isn't it usually it some so sort time. of like well, more wealthier people that do these? Weird... Every second counts. I mean, well, he had to move back with stuff. his parents, so I well, don't if think it's... I'm saying so. You know, if it's not him. Oh, if it was somebody else, yes. yeah, yeah, like, No, I'm talking. Yeah, I'm talking. Okay. About, yeah, if it was somebody else who is wealthy, then yeah, they don't need the cash. I'm saying like cases like this, people are usually like the sicko killers are sometimes more wealthier than others. Depending, yeah, they could be. So they don't really have much better to do I just kind of want to kill somebody well I was just referencing that the fact that he's taunting police and smiles that doesn't mean he's guilty that just means he's kind of crazy at the same time they realize Cox may not have had anything to do with the disappearance that playing coy with cops is just a game 
to him. In mid-1997, Cox wrote the newsleader a letter explaining that then-Sergeant Kevin Routh asked him during an interview in jail to tell him where the bodies were. I told them that I wanted closure too. I'm tired of the harassment I have received because of my association to this case, Cox wrote. Then I told Sergeant Routh if I could tell him where the bodies were, then he would come after me with an indictment and seek the death penalty. Cox went on to write that he could tell the newsleader reporter where the bodies were, but he wouldn't do so because the reporter would have to give him up to the police. I would like him, if he knows something, to tell what he knows, Janice McCall says. He's going to be in prison another 20 years. His appeals are gone by the wayside. He said they were dead and buried them around Springfield. How does he know that? I don't know if he'll ever give up the right information. I want to know where my daughter is. That's what I would ask the man. Cliff Williams thinks about the case that swallowed his life 10 years ago, about becoming executor of his niece's estate. He used to jump in his seat every time he heard on television that remains had been found in the Ozarks. Now he just waits to hear from police. Every few weeks, Williams goes for a trim at Bill Stokes' barbershop, where he's confronted by the poster of the missing woman. He's never told the barber that he's Cheryl Levitt's uncle. I occasionally think about it and wonder if we'll know anything one day. I just hardly don't think we will, says Williams, 82. I don't know if you call it hope. It's just a long, long shot. You can talk odds of a million to one. This is farther than that. I would like to know what happened, but that going to happen? I doubt it. Newsleader reporter Robert Keyes contributed information to the story. The mystery. Thousands of tips, but no evidence. No crime scene. No witnesses. Timeline. Ten years of frustration. June 6th, 6 p.m. Graduation ends at Hammond's Student Center. 7.30 p.m. A friend of Susie's drops off a graduation cake for her. 8.30 p.m. Susie and Stacy show up at their first party of the night in Battlefield on Coach Drive. 9.30 p.m. Cheryl's friend calls her at the house where she's finishing a chair. Refinishing a chair. So she, she actually... Uh, she restored furniture, and that's that's what she did. 10.30 p.m., Stacy calls home and tells her mom they won't be driving to Branson. So they were supposed to go to a water park that night. They'll spend the night at Janelle's. June 7th, 1.30 a.m., Susie and Stacy appear at another party in the 1500 block of East Hanover Street in Springfield. Just before 2 a.m., they go back to Janelle's house on their way back to Susie's, where they would sleep in her new king-sized waterbed. 8 or 9 a.m., Janelle calls Susie's house. No answer. She leaves a message. 12.30 p.m., Janelle and her boyfriend go to the house on East Delmar Street looking for Susie and Stacy. 7 p.m., Janice McCall shows up at the house prepared to take Stacy's belongings and her car home. June 8th, police begin investigating the case. They go to the house and wait for a search warrant to go inside. By the end of the night, police know they have something serious on their hands. The media learn about the disappearance. The FBI is called in to help on June 9th. Every detective at the Springfield Police Department is working on the case. June 13th, the community is invited to help in the search. Dozens of people come wooded areas. June 14th, pictures of the three women air on America's Most Wanted, starring John Walsh. 
Law officers' sweeping search of wooded areas and streams in the Springfield area begins. Officers also search the Boulevard Road apartments after someone leaves a letter in a newsleader rack at Smitty's, 218 South Glenstone Ave. The letter contains a rough drawing of the apartment complex with the phrase, Use ruse of gas man checking for leak. I hadn't heard about that previously. So someone dropped a letter stating that that's what happened. How would they even know? What did it say again? Use ruse of gas man checking for leak. What is that? So someone pretending to be a gas man as a ruse for checking for a leak. So they might let him in if he just kept ran up to the house saying, there's a leak in the neighborhood. You got to get out or something. Huh? And then that's what that Cox guy did, the utility stuff? or did he... Supposedly he just located, he was a locator, so possibly gas lines, and he also knew the sewer system. So he could have theoretically, if they went down to the sewer, he could have theoretically taken them wherever. But here's the thing. One man with three women, I mean, if he had a gun, yeah, I guess he could do it, but it's logistically not that easy. And then there were sightings of a green van. And we don't know what kind of car he had. Because he, he stuffed the other girl in the sewer, right? So he likes chilling down there. Yeah. Well, they searched all of them. Yeah. So And that one was 350 he, feet from his motel. familiar with you know getting in and out of those things, I guess. Supposedly, yeah. June 15th, police go back to the house at 1717 East Del Mar. Officers are working a fresh tip that neighbors saw a transient near the home the days prior to the disappearance. A picture of the man with long hair and a full beard is released. The Missouri Victim Center schedules group counseling sessions for friends, family, and community members struggling with the disappearance. June 16th, police release a photo of a retouched Dodge van similar to one seen near Cheryl and Susie's home early on June 7th. June 18th, because of resources needed for the missing woman case, the Springfield Police Department eliminates overtime in its traffic and DWI programs. The department has already logged 1,632 hours of overtime and has worked 3,147 hours on the case. June 21st, police hammer out their theories. Deputy Chief Ron Warsham says it appears to be an abduction and it can go in two directions. One, a drifting transient watched and waited, then kidnapped the woman. Two, or the answer was in Levitt's background. Police dig deeper into Levitt's past. The reward fund stands at $3,000. June 24th, police work on a new tip. A waitress at George's Steakhouse, one of Levitt's favorite restaurants, says she saw the three women at the diner between 1 and 3 a.m. And that she also saw that they were with some younger men. So that's a strange tip that's discredited, but I'm not sure. That seems, there. I don't know, it could be legit. And that's not far from their house. And she didn't, the, the diner woman didn't see what kind of car they had? I don't believe so. But other waitresses supposedly said they didn't see them. So this sparked some conspiracy theories. So these girls, that, people knew who these girls oh, were? of course, yeah. Like they were... A small Someone, place. One of, the, the waitress said that she she even knew she was Susie Streeter because of her bad attitude. Like, they didn't live that far from the house, so they were familiar with them, especially if they went there often. Other waitresses said they hadn't been there in, like, three months. So there's conflicting stories. Those These are all rumors, by the way. So nobody corroborated this. Is it possible? Some, so is the people theorizing it was some kind of mafia thing or something to do with local drug dealers that they threatened people to stop talking about it or whatnot? But anyway... 
June 7th, the women arrived and left together. The waitress said Susie appeared giddy, perhaps intoxicated, and her mom tried to calm her down. The reward fund skyrockets to $40,000 after a secret gift. So it went from three to 40000 I guess you could just a rich person who's, or possibly, I don't know. Wait, the reward if somebody knows the whereabouts? Yeah, yeah, Where does that money anything. come from? The- it usually comes from, I believe, the police or the public raised money or a private individual anonymously lending it. June 28th, police end the 24-hour command post at Levitt's home. July 19th, FBI Special Agent James Wright comes to Springfield to gather information and perhaps develop a psychological profile of the abductor. September 15th, Levitt's son, Bart Streeter, considered an initial suspect, quits his job and leaves Springfield. He has not returned. It is the 100th day of the investigation. That's coincidental. Who was that again? Bart Streeter, and that's Susie Streeter's brother, Cheryl's son. He was kind of estranged from the family. Uh, We'll go into the background of Bart and Susie. They actually lived together a while before. And then they had a fight, so they blame him for that. There was possibly some violence in the fight. This, there's a lot of different stories, controversial. So Janice McCall said on the September 15th, I'd hate to think of doing this for another 100 days. January 2nd, an anonymous New Year's Eve caller to a switchboard operator of America's Most Wanted is cut off. When the operator tries to link up with Springfield investigators, police still seek contact with the man whom they consider to have prime knowledge of the abductions. So apparently this caller said something that led them to believe that he knew a lot. And then the call got cut? The call got cut off when she was connecting him because he called America's Most Wanted and they were connecting him to the Springfield police and it got cut off. Or the caller hung up. So they don't even know who that is. No, and they were urging him to call back again, and he did not, to the best of our knowledge. It's not been released publicly if he did call back. February 14th, for the first time, police announces that they are considering the possibility that the disappearances are the work of one or more serial killers. March 9th, Susie Streeter's 20th birthday. Her grandparents offer several hundred dollars in additional reward money in a taped appeal played on local television. April 22nd, McCall's 19th birthday. August 28th, information from a police informant leads police to search farmland in Webster County looking for the bodies of the three missing women. Police say they find items at the scene but would not elaborate. The results of the search warrant were sealed. So... We're going to do a dedicated episode on this exact farm and all the details surrounding it because there's a lot of really weird and shady connections with these people. So, yeah, supposedly there was also a green van found on the scene and a lot of strange. By the way, that original green van sighting, that was only – that they used a hypnotist to get that information out of the witness. So it's not – for some reason that's never – Wasn't that spotted though like in front of their house? In, in the neighborhood. In, yeah. Yeah, not too far from their house. And then it turned around and supposedly... But it, that was a hip, hypnotist. A hypnotist pulled that info out of an old lady who was sitting on her porch that <laughs> saw it. We went over this in our previous podcast. If you listen to the Mind Shock podcast, Johnny, you could learn a lot of stuff. <laughs> in 1994, another lead takes police nowhere as officers search a section of Bull Shoals Lake. 
Officers from the Missouri Highway Patrol, Springfield Police, and Ozark County find animal remains and pieces of clothing believed to be panties and t-shirts. The clothing did not match the description of what the women were wearing. Janice and Stu McCall, Stacy's parents, create One Missing Link, a not-for-profit organization to help families with loved ones who are missing. 1995, a grand jury disbands in January without handing up indictments. Robert Craig Cox, whose name came up early in the investigation, is arrested in Texas for aggravated robbery. After information on Cox is presented to a grand jury, investigators interview him in a Texas prison. In the grand jury, Cox's ex-girlfriend tells jurors that she lied when she told police Cox was with her at church the morning of June 7th, 1992. You know what's strange? They never bothered to confirm that alibi. Like, whether it's a girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, like, wouldn't you at least check with anybody else at the church? Like, you're just going to take someone's word for saying that they were with them? Is that strange? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Maxwell, what do you think? Do you think police they, investigations should be done a little bit more thorough than that? But are we sure that they didn't do anything else? That was... Well, nobody's come forward and said, oh, yeah, he was at church. She just said he was with her. And it looks like they never followed up further. And then she admitted that she lied because he threatened her. 1996, news leader reporter Robert Keyes interviews Cox from prison. The inmate tells Keyes he knows the women were killed and buried somewhere in Springfield or close by, quote, and they'll never be found, end quote. That sounds like someone who's just playing games, right? Why would he? Why? I think, um, I don't know. I think he's putting him, not necessarily him that did it, but like he's putting himself in the uh, the person's shoes and like, you know. I don't that know. did it? Yeah. I don't know. Because he knows who it is? Or because or he's probably done the same thing. I don't know. I don't know, dude. <laughs> or it could have been him. I don't know. 1997. The family of Cheryl Levitt and Susie Streeter go through court proceedings to declare the two women dead. Stacy's parents vow that they will not declare their daughter dead until her body is found. On the fifth anniversary, families of the women dedicate a bench in their honor inside the victim's memorial garden in Phelps Grove Park. Cheryl's father isn't at the dedication he passed away a few months before 2001 police consider refocusing some effort on cold cases the missing woman case is high on that priority list corporal greg higdon begins to read old reports and leads 2002 springfield police write cox a letter requesting an interview the inmate declines saying because of police influence he's been segregated from fellow inmates officers continue to work the case rereading reports and searching areas Part two, it was graduation day and Stacy was tired of smiling. She had posed with grandma. Then she took her smile outside to the backyard where her mother fired the flash over and over. And when the teen tried to take off her dress shoes and pantyhose, mom begged for more photos. Don't change just yet, mom pleaded. One more with the graduation cake. Mother, I'm just about smiled out, Stacy grumbled, but she put up with it. The camera kept clicking and she kept the charm flowing. Still, Stacy wondered, couldn't the family wait a day before cutting the white cake with the diploma and black cap and tassel? Janice McCall remembers her daughter's smile as she walked out the door that night, eager to hang out with her friends. She had won. The rest of the celebration could wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow came, but Stacy wasn't in the picture. The cake was never cut. Stacy never read her acceptance letter from Southwest Missouri State University, and she had no time to spend with her graduation puppy, 
a bouncy cocker spaniel named Bubba. When Janice McCall closes her eyes and thinks about her daughter, the enduring image is of a smiling 18-year-old walking out the door one last time, a white puppy playfully snapping at her heels. The frame was frozen on June 6, 1992. A special bond. Susie Streeter thought of her mother, Cheryl Levitt, as one of her best friends. Susie would cancel plans with her friends to spend time with her mom. They could talk about anything, and each made tapes of favorite songs for one another and personal messages. I just wanted to tell you I love you, preceding the music. That's why it wasn't a surprise that the two opted for a take-home pizza and some quiet time alone following Susie's graduation in the hours before Susie would go out to party. Cheryl was the only family member Susie had inside Hammond's Student Center when she got her diploma. After sharing a meal with her daughter, Cheryl would varnish a chair and hang wallpaper border in one room of the home she had purchased two months earlier. Because Susie intended to spend the night with friends at a Branson hotel, Cheryl had the house to herself. At least that was the idea when Susie left home with the beginnings of a stomach ache. Probably from the pizza, she would later tell friends. Minutes later, Susie would be at Janelle Kirby's house. Once Stacy showed up, the three friends would head to the party next door. Cheryl began her chores in the home on East Delmar, accompanied by her little Yorkie, Cinnamon. In the refrigerator was a graduation cake to be shared later. Congrats, Suze, was written in icing. Lifelong friends. Janelle and Stacy had been friends since they were toddlers. The McCall and Kirby families lived near each other in Battlefield. Janelle's mom had watched Stacy when she was three or four. The two girls became best friends playing in the neighborhood and preparing for kindergarten at the same time. Pictures in Janelle's photo album show the two at a birthday party, big grins etched across their faces. In second grade, Stacy and Janelle met Susie, a tall blonde who had a small tumor on her chin. Susie had been held back in second grade and was a year older, but the three connected, sometimes spending the night together. The McCalls moved out of state when Stacy was 11 and it was just Janelle and Susie. When Stacy moved back a couple years later, things were different. From then on, it wasn't the same, Janelle Kirby says. Instead of three, it was typically two. Sometimes Janelle and Stacy, sometimes Janelle and Susie. And as high school approached, Stacy migrated toward the popular crowd, and Susie tilted more toward a rowdy bunch. Janelle was the glue for the three. But a couple of months before graduation, the three rekindled the closeness of childhood. Janelle and Stacy remained close like sisters. They took their ACT together, celebrated their 18th birthdays, went to prom. It was a big month for us, Janelle says. Susie was back in the picture too, especially on graduation. The girls were happy, headed for an uncertain but promising future. Stacy and Janelle would go to Southwest Missouri State, and they were thinking about pledging a sorority. Susie was headed for cosmetology school, following in the footsteps of her mother, Cheryl, who had more than 250 clients at New Attitudes Hair Salon. But before all that, they would have a few days of fun, and it would start on graduation night. Before the three left the graduation ceremony at SMS, they intended to meet at Janelle's around 8 p.m., go to a party next door, then to another across town, and finally drive to a hotel in Branson and hit white water the following morning. So that's the water park. Last-minute decision. Stacy knew her parents were worried about the girls driving to Branson late at night. All Janice and Stu McCall could think about was the night of their own graduation when two friends were killed in a traffic accident. 
Stacy called home about 10.30 p.m. with a change of plans. The girls had decided to play it safe. We're not going to leave tonight, Stacy told her mom over the phone. We're going to Whitewater in the morning, and I'm going to stay here at Janelle's. Call me before you leave for Whitewater, Janice told her daughter. All right, I will, Stacy answered. Good night. Janice felt assured. She went to bed. A long, happy day had ended. The girls loaded up and went to another party at friend Michelle Elder's house. Stacy and Michelle agreed that they should do more together. But the party on East Hanover Street got a little loud and a neighbor called police. An officer showed up at 1.40 a.m., shooing partiers away. Susie and Stacy went to their cars parked at Janelle's. Her mom, Kathy Kirby, had a pallet laid out on her living room floor for Susie and Stacy. Janelle would sleep on the couch because family members from out of town were sleeping in her bedroom. Susie and Stacy decided they would be more comfortable sleeping on Susie's new waterbed and told Janelle they'd see her in the morning. Kathy Kirby woke up when her daughter came in the front door. She heard the girls outside. Follow me to my house, Susie told her friend. Okay, Stacy answered, I will. Okay, so let me interject here. So some people believe that Janelle and possibly other friends were somehow responsible for what happened to them. So some of these crazy conspiracy theories involve Janelle simply being jealous that they weren't going to stay there and go somewhere else. <clears throat> so yeah. some people say that they weren't killed or abducted at the Streeter house, that they were actually something happened to them before and someone parked their cars there because the car was not parked in the normal position. Mm. So Cheryl and Susie parked their cars very particularly mm. and that's not the way they were parked that yeah. particular night. Now, what makes it slightly weird is because if they're getting home at like 2 in the morning, they're not going to necessarily park normally either. So it's like it's a little weird, like mm. you can't completely rule it out. But it's just a little strange. So what are your feelings on the case so far, Johnny? So real quick. So this happened on the night of graduation. Mm -hmm. So they went out partying, the three girls. or The, the two, three girls three. went out partying, yes. And so they actually made it back home. They made it back to Janelle's. That so nobody home. can. So that's one of the points of contention. Do we have 100% irrefutable proof that they made it to the Streeter's house, to Susie's house? Supposedly they took their makeup off and those those uh, tissues are, were in the wastebasket. I'm not sure if they were actually tested. And that's where that lady said they made it to the diner and they were hanging out with some boys, guys, whatever. If that was them, yeah. If that so was them. The commonly accepted timeline is that wasn't them. Okay. Also, someone, else I don't know. Where could if, they have been? Did people say where they were? Like a, They couldn't be at a bar. So, so supposedly there was an uh, a sighting at a grocery store that we went into that, that both that they went to earlier in the night. So this is before going back to Janelle. But they said they saw Cheryl Levitt looking for her daughter. And the clerk initially was deemed credible, and then this all disappeared. This is only in the first couple of newspaper articles. We went over in this in the previous episodes. He said it was her, and she was looking for her daughter. Why would she be looking for her daughter? Before Something she was missing? At like somewhere around 11, yeah. 11 in like that neighborhood? Just yeah. Just looking around? Um, what is, but some lady across the street said it wasn't her, so then that was all forgotten about. But so you remember all this, Maxwell, right? We had extensive conversation on this. Yeah. They were <laughs> drunk, though. Did you, is there any? Were they drunk? Like I when don't they know. Came back home. None people, of, a lot of her friends described 
Susie as being agitated even at graduation like she didn't want to be alone so some people think that she was threatened by the ex-boyfriend and his group of friends who possibly knew Janelle was he older or like in one within one or two years within I think he was a year or two older but he probably wasn't in school we'll go into that whole dynamic later like could they have gotten you know went to a uh, college party or something well their whereabouts are pretty known so it was their high school. It was the high school parties. The thing is, sometimes co- one of the theory, someone had a theory that college guys from some kind of organization or frat as a initiation, they had to kill that they something got out of hand, or they saw them there, then they went, followed them back to the house and killed them all. And they didn't know the mom was going to be there, so then they had to kill her. There's a whole bunch of insane theories in this case. It's just bizarre. Mm. Any new thoughts, Maxwell? Since last time, well, I'm thinking if it's uh, if they never. If they never made it home, uh, I don't know. It's kind of they're going out of their way to put the person to make in it line seem, yeah, to make it seem stairs. like they did go home, yeah, yeah. But but that kind of we don't know if the they, exact... if, they, if that is if that is true. It kind of makes sense with the purses lined up because like, what do you think? I don't know. They're not gonna scatter yeah. this person like they just. Well, the other the weird thing is they had to be taken by force because. If they were chain smokers, like they don't leave the room without smoking and they left their cigarettes. So unless if they were killed elsewhere, they just left their cigarettes there. I don't know. It mm. seems to me that it's most likely they did make it back to the house. Most likely. Unless, unless they they made it back to the house, tried to go to sleep and then left again. That, that's a big team we don't effort because there's three cars, yeah. right? Yes. So like if it, if it was, if they never made it home, that's a that's a big team. It is. Yeah. That's like it's rough. That's like their a ten-person team because found their cars in the drive. All the cars were in the driveway. Because yeah, yeah. one, one, because one person couldn't. Where were they? How far was the party again? We went over all this. I'm sorry. With uh, maps. Okay. Well, anyway, how much? How long? How far? <laughs> Just say it. Probably about uh, twenty minutes. So they were at a high school or party. 15, okay. So there's no minutes. way. There's no way one person could have done black back and forth like drive it and and going. Probably all not. No. Probably not. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so part three. Janelle Kirby was curious. She had been with Stacy McCall and Susie Streeter at graduation parties the night before, and they had agreed to meet her the next day for some fun at a Branson water park. It was nearly noon, and the girls hadn't called. Janelle decided to drive over to Susie's house at 1717 East Delmar Street, where she figured Stacy and Susie were sleeping in to investigate. Hopping out of her car barefoot, the first thing Janelle noticed was broken glass shimmering on the front steps. The porch globe was busted, yet the yellow bulb burned bright under the midday sun. Someone or something must have bumped it, she thought. No big deal. As a favor to Susie's mom, Janelle's boyfriend Mike grabbed a broom, swept up the glass, and dumped it in the garbage. A decade later, Authorities view that broken glass as a possible clue to the disappearance of McCall Streeter and Cheryl Levitt on June 7, 1992. Back then, it was an annoyance that could have cut Janelle's feet. And as Janelle peered into the house through the living room window, Mike unknowingly discarded the only piece of evidence in what appears to be a kidnapping and triple murder, a case that still reverberates in the Ozarks. Each of the missing women had a car parked in the driveway. Looking through the window, nothing seemed to be amiss inside. The living room was tidy. Janelle walked around to the backyard thinking her friends might be sunbathing on a cloudless day with temperatures near 80. Nothing. Better have a look inside, Janelle and Mike thought. Maybe they were asleep. Maybe they had left a note. The house was still. 
Janelle knew Susie's little Yorkie well, but had never seen him yap and carry on as he did when she cracked open the front door. Cinnamon jumped up into her arms, comfortable being with someone he knew. I started yelling for them, for Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl, Janelle says. The house was still. She walked through the living room and kitchen, then the bathroom and Susie's room. Little things caught her attention. Susie's bed covers were pulled back. The room was a little messy, but nothing unusual for a teenager. The woman's purses were still in the house, piled up on the steps of Susie's sunken bedroom. Susie and her mother, Cheryl, had left behind their cigarettes. That was odd, Janelle thought. The two were constantly smoking and rarely went anywhere without smokes. Puzzled, Janelle and Mike went to a friend's house, wondering if Susie and Stacy had gone there before meeting for the trip to Branson. But their friend Shane hadn't seen the girls. In fact, he was still in bed. And just a point here, Shane was the one that had given them rides from the parties. So he was with them, possibly one of the last known people to have seen them. Janelle and Mike returned to 1717 East Delmar Street one more time. Nothing. It suddenly occurred to them that the woman might have walked to a neighborhood sub shop for lunch, so they hurried over there but again found nothing. They scanned sidewalks of every street they passed, hoping to find the woman taking a leisurely walk. By this time, Janelle and Mike were worried, but they still didn't think the woman had disappeared. They just didn't know where they had gone. Maybe Janice knew. Let me talk to Stacy. When Janice McCall hadn't heard from her daughter by midday that Sunday, she called Janelle's house. Janelle's sister answered the phone. Have they gotten up yet? Janice asked. The sister explained that Janelle wasn't home. She left with Mike. Let me talk to Stacy, Janice asked. She didn't stay here, the sister answered. Janice told the sister that Stacy did stay there last night, explaining that Stacy had called her about 10.30 p.m. with the news. No, Janelle's sister insisted. Stacy went to Susie's house. The Kirby house was crowded with relatives, and Stacy and Susie had decided to go to Susie's so they could sleep in her new king-sized waterbed. Janice was a little upset that her daughter didn't stay where she had planned to sleep, but she would talk with Stacy about that later. For the time being, she called Susie's and left instructions on the answering machine for Stacy to call her when she returned. Like Janelle and Mike, Janice was worried but not alarmed. The McCall family went to Lake Springfield to watch miniature boats race as planned. Janice's mother from Oklahoma was in town and the family enjoyed a hot day in the sun together. Janice had talked to Janelle who explained that she and Mike couldn't find Stacy and Susie. As the day wore on, Janice's voice on Susie's answering machine got, was getting more and more frantic. Her concerns evident. Her worry grew when she got a call from a friend, the mother of one of Stacy's close friends. Are you aware Stacy's purse and her car and Susie's car is still at Cheryl's house, but the girls aren't, the woman said. The sun was starting to set. Janice and one of her two older daughters jumped in the car and drove towards the tiny house on Delmar. The plan was that the sister would drive Stacy's car home. I was going to let her look for her car and clothes, Janice says. I thought that serves you right. You didn't let me know anything, and I won't let you know. <laughs> Where could she be? Light was fading from the evening sky, and mature trees around Levitt's home made the entryway dark. Janice searched for a light and finally found the switch on a table lamp. She looked around the small, dimly lit living room and made her way through the house. Suddenly, 
The house on Delmar was filling with people. Family and friends and parents of friends began pouring into the little house, wondering where the woman could be. Janice paced the kitchen, still upset that Stacy hadn't told her where she was. That wasn't like Stacy, the youngest of three daughters. She was the type of girl who let her parents know where she was at all times. Stacy had earlier snuck out of the house, only to find her mom waiting outside the apartment building she had gone into. Stacy knew her mom. She knew that Janice worried and that a phone call was always required. Janice couldn't understand why her daughter had been gone so long. Things weren't adding up. Not only were the purses of all three women inside, with car keys and a large sum of money in Cheryl's bag, but so were some of Stacy's clothes. And her migraine medication, something she never left behind, was in her purse. Stacy relied on that medication when her headaches were too much to bear. I thought, why would she leave all of this here, Janice recalls. She kept asking Janelle back at East Delmar for the third time that day, where could she be, where could she be? The mother of one of Stacy's friends was with Janice in the kitchen. They planned to look through Cheryl's personal phone book and call friends to see if they had any idea where the woman might have gone. Let's make a pot of coffee, the friend suggested, Janice thought. I don't want to do that. What's Cheryl going to say when we're sitting here in her kitchen drinking coffee? Janice started calling people, including a former stepdaughter. No one had heard from Cheryl. Former stepdaughter? Janice called her husband, Stu. There's something not right. Something is really wrong. He agreed. It was time to call police. But not 911, Janice thought. That's only for emergencies. And that's not what this was. Not yet. I was still waiting for them to come in, Janice said. She called the department number and the dispatcher asked if she wanted to call 911. No, just take down the information and send an officer, Janice asked. Within minutes, Officer Rick Bookout got the call. The overnight shift. The overnight shift is typically a cop's favorite. The calls are exciting. Officers don't have to bother with the traffic and requests for service aren't as heavy. They can work proactive cases. Bookout had just clocked in when he heard the police radio crackle. Dispatchers needed the three-year veteran to go to 1717 East Delmar Street to take a missing persons report. You get a lot of those, Bookout says. They're pretty typical. When he got to the house, the door was open, the lights were on, the smell of varnish hit him hard. He figured someone must be doing a remodeling project. Several people were already inside, milling around the house a block west of Glenstone Avenue. Janelle was there, so was her boyfriend Mike. They hadn't gone to Whitewater, settling instead for a water slide in Springfield known as Hydra Slide. Janelle still had her swimsuit on underneath her clothes, her shorts soaking wet from the suit. Bookout first talked to Stu and Janice McCall. The officer began jotting down the McCall's story in his tiny flip notebook. Their youngest daughter, Stacy, 18, had come to the house to spend the night with Susie Streeter, a childhood friend. Stacy and Susie weren't supposed to spend the night there, but when plans changed, they decided to sleep at the house and go to Whitewater that morning with some friends. They never called friends to rendezvous for the trip to Branson, and they never answered phone calls, which began about 8 a.m. Bookout took a walk through the home, Janice at his side. They went into Susie's room where pictures of famous blondes hung on the wall and seven oversized stuffed animals were scattered across the floor. Two slats in the window blinds had been separated as if someone was looking out. The three women's purses were all together, Stacy's sitting on Susie's overnight bag. The officer made some notes in his notebook. The television was left on... The bed wasn't made. It looked as if the two girls had gotten ready for bed. 
Book out looked at Janice. They could have just gone out having fun, he speculated. If she is, she's in her underwear, Janice answered. On the floor were Stacy's flowered shorts, her rings, and her watch in the pocket. Could she have worn some of Susie's clothing to go out? Bookout asked. No, Janice answered. Stacy wouldn't fit into Susie's clothes. Bookout sat at the dining room table with the McCalls and others. The little Yorkie jumped up on his lap. Cinnamon was shaking like crazy, scared with all the strangers in his house. Bookout said, I was thinking, I wish the little dog could talk. Panic rises, hope fades. Officer Brian Galt was the second officer called to the scene. He and Bookout took inventory of the sparse facts they had. The three women were gone. Their purses had been left behind, along with the keys to their cars all parked in the driveway. The porch globe had been broken. The glass swept up and discarded. The missing mother and daughter were smokers, and they had left their cigarettes. She'd leave her house without a lot of things, but a smoker wouldn't leave without cigarettes and a lighter, Bookout says today. I'm thinking, yeah, this probably isn't a good situation. The officers deemed this was a missing persons report and that foul play was suspected. As Janelle watched Bookout jot down notes and interview people in the home, her panic level rose. Sitting on the porch steps facing Delmar Street, she watched every set of headlights approached, praying that a car would stop and the woman would get out with an explanation for their absence. But hope was beginning to fade. She sat on the steps and cried hard. The next question hit Janice like a brick. Can you obtain de dental records for Stacy? Bookout inquired. Her heart sank. She knew that everything in the house, the clothes and cigarettes and keys left behind, spelled trouble. I thought if they want dental records, they want to identify my daughter, says Janice, a dental hygienist. They thought my daughter could be dead. Finally, the group of people paraded out of the house and Bookout locked the front door. Janice was startled her voice frantic. How are they going to get in when they come home? Bookout tried to reassure her. If they want to get in, they can come to the department and identify themselves. He taped a small blue note on the door. It was a standard missing persons letter with a handwritten message on the back. When you get in, please call and cancel the missing persons report. So what do we think so far, Johnny? Do you think Janelle could have anything to do with it? Because if they're that upset looking for their friend, they're going to go to a water park. So they're, they're, supposedly when they first visit the house so they're they're getting kind of worried they're going to visit shane asking him if he had seen them he doesn't seen them they're going to the sub shop and then they're like oh well let's go to the water slide real quick <laughs> i mean unless they thought they were there to go to the water slide <laughs> i mean they were all supposed to go to the water park right the that big day. one the branson yeah. one the one that's farther away yes well, the other thing that's weird, some people think that whole story is fishy with the water park because if they're partying till 2 or 3 a.m., they're going to go to the water park at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or even 9 a.m.? Yeah. On um, graduation night after then, a whole night of partying. If they never showed up or whatever, ugh, like did did they ever go to the water park? Like they didn't, right? Because what if they were just at the water park? Well, I think – oh, no, they didn't show up. At the, but I think the graduating seniors – I'm thinking that was a thing to go to the water park. If so, that means other people went. But no, they didn't go. They were never seen again. The last time they were seen was at Janelle's house. So Shane was the one that drove them to the house from at the other party. Late yeah. in the morning. Yeah, at whatever the time was, 2 a.m. I'm just saying, like, it'd be kind of, it kind of makes sense. Like, oh, maybe they just went to the water park without telling us. <laughs>
as a possibility. And you're saying it's weird because they didn't think that? I get it. Well, the water pipe, they went to the Hydra slide, which isn't a real, it's like a tiny little. Well, they made that up at the last minute though, right? Well, no, her shorts were still wet. So if they, although it would be interesting, that's a good point. It would be interesting to confirm that definitively if anybody else saw them there. Because some people speculate, there were weird comments made by other classmates, which we'll go into future episodes, not to tease the listeners. But this case is huge. There's, There's a lot of weird theories and rabbit holes to go down this one. There were several places named where the bodies were dumped in bodies of water. Some people think her shorts were wet because they were dumping bodies. Once again, very, very dark theories. Janelle, I don't know. What do you think of Janelle, Maxwell? She's okay. Any kind of vibe? It's. It definitely seems like she's nervous, and she definitely knows more than what she's saying. Once again, does that mean she's involved with their kidnapping, murder, or cover-up in any way? Of course not. Of course not. doesn't mean that at all. But definitely a little bit strange. So what do you think, Johnny? You still thinking it's Cox, or do you think this story is getting stranger and stranger? There's a lot more that I'm hearing about now, so. Yeah, there's even more once we get into the ex-boyfriend and some of these other friends. And there's even actually a motorcycle gang that's involved with some drug dealing. And there's also some DWBs, Maxwell. There's some devil-worshipping occultists in this as well, which we'll get into. I'm sure Johnny's waiting to hear about that. (laughs) Part 4. Before television cameras or newspaper reporters showed up at their South Springfield home 10 years ago today, Janice and Stu McCall made a pact. They would not show emotion publicly. When the cameras were rolling, when the reporters were taking notes, the McCalls would fight back tears. They would hold in the fear, and when making public, often national pleas for the return of their daughter Stacy, they would read from a prepared statement. Sticking to a speech would keep them strong. Ad-libbing could result in a breakdown. If somebody was holding her against her will and they showed her a video or newspaper of us all upset, it would be difficult for her. Janice says, of the strategy a decade past. Even though we were crying all the time, we didn't want people to portray us that way. We didn't want that. We only thought of Stacy. Stu and Janice McCall made the pact on June 8, 1992. By then, they had not seen their daughter in more than 36 hours, and a missing persons report had been filed with the police department. The final image they held of Stacy was a regal, happy young woman walking out the door hours after her high school graduation ceremony, headed for a Saturday night of partying with friends. Now it was Monday morning, and they were earnestly showing Stacy's picture to hospital workers, hoping that they may have admitted a young woman without an identification card. Janice kept going back to the fact that Stacy suffered horribly from migraine headaches and that she'd had to have her medication with her at all times. Without it, she might have checked herself into a hospital, Janice reasoned. Stacy's purse, with her medication inside, was found inside friend Susie Streeter's house on East Delmar, along with Susie's purse and the purse of Susie's mother, Cheryl Levitt. The three women had mysteriously vanished from the home during the early morning hours of Sunday, June 7th. Reality was beginning to set in with the McCalls, a tight family of five who always shared evening meals. Still, Janice knew what she had to do next. Days earlier, she and her three daughters had watched the Adam Walsh story on television. It was a true story about a little boy who vanished from a department store while shopping with his mother. Facing the disappearance of her own child, Janice leaned on the images from the show. They needed posters, 
thousands of them, with pictures of Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl. They needed to call the media to have pictures of the woman telegraphed nationwide, and she would have to develop a strong rapport with police to ensure that the search was deep, wide, and thorough. Full court press. Sitting at his desk that Monday morning, Sergeant Mark Webb reread the report of the three missing women and immediately thought about his two young daughters. Report number 920169 was mixed in with a large stack of reports on robberies, assaults, and rapes from the weekend. Someone had told him to look out for this particular missing persons report. Officer Rick Bookout's words leaped off the white-lined report. Two Kickapoo girls and one of their moms were missing. They had just graduated from high school and had spent Saturday night partying with friends. Then they vanished from a house on East Delmar. I thought how horrible it would be to be the parents, Webb says now. Each woman's car was still in the driveway. Their purses and keys and cigarettes were still inside the home, Webb read. The girls had planned to meet a friend for a trip to Branson on Sunday morning, but they hadn't shown up. Webb was a 15-year veteran of the Springfield Police Department. He knew it didn't look good. Three people don't just disappear at the same time. This looked like the real deal, not a prank the department had invested enormous resources in several weeks earlier when officers feared a young woman had been abducted. An abandoned car was found on the Southwest Missouri State University campus. A woman's purse was inside and there were signs of a struggle. The department hit it with what then police chief Terry Knowles called a full court press. In the end though, officers discovered the scene was staged by the woman who ran off to California to be with her boyfriend. I didn't know that was like a big thing, like staging your own disappearance to run off with somebody. Usually you just disappear, right? You don't actually make a staging. You just go, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's kind of weird. I mean, who owned the well, car? Well, why did she have to stage it? Was she afraid? Well, we uh, don't know. They just referenced this as a prank, as sort of like not a prank, but like a, a stage disappearance that they invested a lot of time into. Now they got a real one. This one was different, Webb concluded, after reading about Cheryl and Susie and Stacy. He took the report to Captain Tony Glenn. Glenn, I think we're going to have another full court press, Webb says. I think you're right, Glenn answers. Detectives were called in. Meetings were held. A search warrant was written. The first few hours of day one had begun, and the officers had no clue what lay ahead of them. In the beginning, hope. Janice McCall never had reason to go to the police station before, but now she was desperate to find it. What had they learned? What was their strategy? How wide a net had been cast? Her face was red from tears, her eyes droopy from lying awake all night, sick with worry. Now she was lost. Then she spotted the row of police cars off Chestnut Expressway and pulled into the station. She stood before Sergeant Webb. You could tell she was upset, Webb recalls. Who wouldn't be? She was there to do whatever she could to help us find her daughter. Janice knew that police initially believed that the women were out there celebrating and that they would return when the party ended. She knew in her heart that wasn't correct. Her daughter was in trouble. Webb told her that the department already had things in motion. Detective Richard Weeder was working the case and other veteran detectives were coming in. The department was waiting on a search warrant to get inside the house. In the beginning, I had every hope we would solve this within a few days, Webb said, that would find them, know what happened, I thought would get to the bottom of it. Because there was no sign of struggle inside the home and only a busted globe on the outside light which had been swept up and tossed aside, there was essentially no crime scene. 
and the fact that 18 friends and family members had been in the house throughout Sunday didn't help either, authorities say. Officers knew they were racing against the clock. With each passing hour, authorities were less likely to find the woman alive, provided they found them at all. There was nothing that indicated anything happened to them, says Wheater, who's now retired. Outside the house, nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. Weeder stood outside as commanders waited for the search warrant. The small home was surrounded by police tape and secured. Neighbors began to gather, wondering what had happened to the mother and daughter who had just moved to the neighborhood two months before. I started to be afraid. Cliff Williams was at his home near Stratford when his brother Jim, Levitt's father, called from Seattle. His brother was upset. In essence, he said they'd been taken, Cliff Williams says today. I think he said they had been kidnapped. They were missing. The cops had been out there and there was very little evidence. It just knocked him down. Jim told Cliff he would be coming to Springfield soon and that he would call again when he knew more. One of the next calls Jim Williams made was to his daughter, Debbie Schwartz, who also lived on the West Coast. She didn't get the message for a while, but when she did, it was hard to believe that she was hearing about her sister Cheryl and niece Susie. Their purses were in the house, the same house Debbie had visited the month before and cars parked in the driveway. But the women and a friend of Susie's were gone. The police were involved. I started to be afraid, Schwartz says now. I didn't believe something like that would happen to her. She's very careful. She'd never be one to pick up a hitchhiker. She's not the kind of person to be caught up in a scam. She'd ask questions. Cheryl wouldn't let someone in her house. She wouldn't let someone hurt Susie. This was the case. Late Monday afternoon, Captain Glenn found Police Chief Terry Knowles and his assistant Ron Warsham on the front steps of the police department returning from a meeting at City Hall. Glenn had another briefing on the three missing women. I told them it looked like we could be in trouble on this one, Glenn says today. Things weren't adding up. Cheryl hadn't shown up at work, which was totally out of character for the hairstylist with 250 loyal clients. By the way, some people think that one of her clients might have been either a serial killer or some kind of crazy person that wanted to kill her or whatever. So if he went to the house and then the girls came home unexpectedly, he didn't want to kill them. But... They walked in on whatever. The only thing weird with that is that the, the crime, there's like no crime scene. Everything's all neat. So that's kind of strange too. So it could have been someone who was after Cheryl or it could have been someone who was after either or Susie because of the grave robbers thing or even Stacy, which we didn't get to. But we'll get to who worked at her car, the car dealership where her dad worked that they had seen Stacy and Susie at before. We'll get into that in a little bit. Are you fascinated by this case yet, Johnny? <laughs> it's riveting information. Maxwell's on the edge of his seat. He's keeping track of all these details. Stacy, the responsible teen who'd always let her family know where she was, hadn't checked in. And Stacy would, would have needed her migraine medication by now. Though police had gotten one report of a sighting that the three women may have jumped on a plane, investigators knew they were dealing with a serious crime. I hadn't heard about that one, that they went on a plane. Hmm. I mean, there's not too many theories where they're still alive. Like, they faked That's their own That's what Maxwell said. <laughs> a plane, they crashed. Oh, at the beginning of the podcast? Yeah. yeah. Well, there was no plane crash. But yeah. some people yeah. think, I don't know. Do some people think they just went on a permanent vacation? Like, they just wanted to leave their lives? It's There's just no way. There's too not many. Not without their cigarettes or their well, purses. Yeah, there's well, too many people. they got plenty of cigarettes where they're going. Unless they wanted to stage it as a, dis- as a disappearance for some reason. Maybe they quit that, that night. Cold turkey? They all decided to quit that night and left. 
<laughs> no more cigarettes. <laughs> you know what's weird is that would Stacy have been involved with that because she was so close with her family? Like, why would she get roped into that? Some people think that Stacy was just super, super nice and Susie was so agitated and she didn't want to spend the night alone because she was nervous about whatever, either the grave robbers or whatever. Stacy didn't really want to go with her, but she was trying to be nice. So that could have... Mm. So it seems very unlikely that they would have just hopped on a plane somewhere. Unless they wanted to do it as a surprise graduation one day thing and something happened to them somewhere else. But why would she not tell her and mom? there's no proof of like tickets bought or no, anything, right? No, nothing. Just this one person. I hadn't heard of this. Someone reported that they saw them getting on a plane at an airport, I guess. So it could have just been someone who looked like them from a distance. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. It's typical in missing persons cases for people to call in reports because they think they saw them. Because, you know, they watch a news report. Like, oh, maybe I saw them. They're not being dishonest. They can't tell. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they did. So they just Should wanted to err on the side of caution because what if it is them? Then they'd feel bad if they didn't put forth the tip. Lights of the second floor detective offices burned bright Monday night as detectives made calls and created a timeline that would soon be on display in the chief's conference room. The long sleepless nights for Springfield detectives began June 8, 1992. Nearly every other case was set aside. Everything went on hold. This was the case, Webb says. There were people whose lives would change before them. A lot of cops won't sit around and talk about it and admit that they were upset that they were hurting. But that's what this case would do. It looked like a grave, the earth moist and dark on top, as if soil had been freshly turned. Officers Dana Carrington and Ron Hutchinson stood gripping shovels on a patch of rocky wooded terrain near Lake Springfield. The call had come in like hundreds of others, offering help with the three women who had vanished days earlier. It seemed promising the break police needed. This is a place where someone could bury someone, Hutchinson thought as he glanced around the secluded area covered with brush and towering trees. But this lead played out like all the rest in the 10-year-old mystery surrounding the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall. Optimism soon faded to disappointment. It was a large anthill. An anthill, emphasizes Hutchinson, now a lieutenant in the traffic division who was a major crimes investigator in 1992. That's just one story. I went on many leads like that. It showed us we were really grasping for evidence. Officers followed buzzard sightings, even flying an investigator to Arkansas to check a field where hovering birds had been spotted two days earlier. Man, that's dedication. You don't see that in the Maura Murray case. Visions from psychics were pursued, and officials had tarot cards read at least once in a hope that it would generate a lead. When it came to possible evidence, everything, regardless of relevance, was collected, tagged, and stored. Among the items were dingy, soiled jeans from a trash can that prompted a citizen's tip of a suspicious odor and a large pair of women's underwear floating in Lake Springfield, shorts so big all three women could have fit inside. Unlike any case before or after the disappearance of the three women, detectives chased tips that came from the community, not from officers on the street. Some blamed that on former police chief Terry Knowles, whom they described as a micromanager who didn't let detectives do their job. Officers say key suspects whose investigators believed had a motive to abduct the women were ruled out by the police chief himself. George Larby was president of the Springfield Police Officers Association in 1992. He says officers felt Knowles did not have confidence in them, and that generated a lot of infighting within the department during the biggest investigation of detectives' careers. If your highest command tells you how it's going to be, simply put, 
That's how it's going to be, says Larby, who now serves as a captain in the Greene County Sheriff's Department. Detectives felt powerless. The newer guys wouldn't have any idea what was going on, that this wasn't normally the way we did business, adds Greene County Prosecutor Daryl Moore, who was assistant prosecutor when the woman disappeared. This was clearly the most micromanaged case I've ever seen. Seasoned detectives were not allowed to use their experience and judgment in this investigation. This is the only case where that happened, and I don't understand that. Other chiefs and sheriffs have let the guys run with the investigation. Knowles doesn't deny he was a hands-on approach as a leader. He says he wants more than a briefing. He wants to know what's going on. But Knowles' disagreement with detectives who claim his dictatorial ways undermine the case. Contacted recently at his office at the Kansas Bureau of Investigations in Topeka, where he's the deputy director, Knowles says he has not heard accusations of micromanaging. I don't recall that being an issue back then, he says today. What anyone wants to say 10 years later, I can't control that. It's certainly disappointing and it's frustrating at the time to be doing everything you possibly can. Cases don't always work out the way you want them to, says Knowles, who didn't elaborate on whether he, like the detectives, is haunted by the mystery. How you feel 10 years later is immaterial. How I feel now would not help solve the case. It could be bad. It was Sunday, June 9, 1992. Lieutenant Mike Brazil was out of town. He was fairly new in the detective division and was on a five-day, five-city tour of police departments to learn how other cities ran a detective division, how they did investigations. His thoughts often drifted back home to Springfield, where three women had vanished two days before. We got a situation going on now with three missing people. Now retired Captain Tony Glenn told Brazil on June 8, 1992, when he called to check in, it could be bad. I asked several times, maybe I should come back, says Brazil, who is now retired and running an investigations business. There's nothing you can do at this point other than stand here with me and worry, Glenn recalls telling his colleague a decade ago. This case was difficult because nothing except the busted globe of an outside light was amiss at Cheryl Levitt's South Central home on 1717 East Delmar Street where the women disappeared the day after Streeter and McCall graduated from Kickapoo High School. A vehicle belonging to each woman sat in Cheryl Levitt's driveway, and the woman's car keys and purses were inside the small, tidy home. There was no sign of a struggle. On Tuesday, June 11th, the worry at police headquarters had increased. We're in a full-court press, and I don't know where this is going to go, Glenn told Brazil in a telephone conversation. Brazil was familiar with a full-court press, Knowles' term for throwing extensive resources at a case, pulling officers from other cases to give priority to just one case. Each day, Brazil called Glenn. He was torn, and so was Glenn. Brazil wanted badly to be in Springfield. But as this case grew bigger and more mysterious, police also knew what Brazil was learning on the road was more important than ever. He stayed on the trip, and when he got home on Friday, June 12th, the day before officers took off on ATVs and horses and powerboats to randomly search for clues throughout Greene County, things had changed. How often do you think police departments just use all their resources? Boats, ATVs, they just go all over just looking for whatever. I mean, that's dedication right there. That's how most disappearance should probably be handled, right off the bat. The line was blurred. Investigation briefings now were being held in the chief's conference room. Daily news conferences were scheduled to update the media. The Federal Bureau of Investigations had joined the case. Detectives were discouraged from sharing with one another tips they had run down. 
That's kind of strange. Instead of coming into the department and working the phones, letting one lead prompt another as they would on any normal major investigation, detectives were mostly getting tip cards. Everything from sightings to suspicious activities to run down. Some sat answering the phones and listening to callers' concerns. Veteran detectives were baffled by this new game plan. It was no longer a CIS, criminal investigations section case. It was a case run out of the administration, says Corporal Doug Thomas, who was a major crimes investigator in 1992 and carried the missing woman case longer than any detective. Investigative decisions were made out of the chief's conference room. The line was blurred because we hadn't done that before. Thomas doesn't criticize when he talks about the change in protocol. His comments reflect only a confusion detectives felt 10 years ago when they showed up for work and everything they'd known and done for years had changed. What's so puzzling is that the detectives who felt handcuffed were talented, says Glenn, who was division commander. On all other cases, they were given latitude to do their jobs. Good detectives need to be supervised, Glenn says, not micromanaged. Webster County Sheriff Ron Worsham, who was Knowles' assistant chief in 1992, believes the case was managed well. Knowles had come from the FBI and Worsham had attended the FBI Academy. They were trained for major investigations. Who else would you want doing the investigation, Warsham asked today. The best people at the department ran the investigation. We didn't let investigators just run and do whatever they wanted. I don't know how anybody can criticize. For those who do that, they have psychological problems. Case takes on life of own. Daryl Moore was at a prosecutor's conference in September 1992 when the television news magazine 48 Hours jumped to life on the screen. He found a television at a lake of the Ozarks Hotel because he knew Springfield's case of the three missing women would be featured for Sweeps Week. Moore saw clips from across the city, the hair salon where Levitt worked, the house on Delmar where the three women vanished, the McCalls passing out posters with the women's photos and descriptions. What he saw next he'll never forget. Footage of two suspects being given a polygraph test. That's a total violation of the disciplinary rules, Moore says today. We can't even say whether or not polygraphs have been done, much less allow the media to film it. Reporters were given unprecedented access 10 years ago, prosecutors say. They were allowed to air and print tips that came in. Nearly every detail from the house, from what was inside to how rooms looked that June morning when the woman disappeared, was released. If police had developed a suspect and that person was charged, prosecutors feared they would have trouble in court. If the defense was alleging police misconduct, it would have been true, Moore says today, but that was done by one person, the chief. Knowles disagrees. He needed to get information out, and the media helped do that, he says. If this was a serial crime, other communities across the nation might be able to help. At one point, then-prosecutor Tom Mountjoy wrote Knowles a letter saying the lid had to be closed on information being released. If things didn't change, people could be held legally responsible. Mountjoy, now a Greene County judge, won't talk about the turmoil from a decade ago, explaining that dredging up the past won't help the ongoing investigation. He adds only that prosecutors are supposed to be kept apprised of a case to make sure it's clean when it goes to trial. I don't think I had a handle on what was going on, Mountjoy says today. There was not a case lead detective not one person you can go to. With high-profile cases, those cases can take on a life of their own. If left on their own, something other than the law enforcement can become in charge. 
a moss green van. The woman was sure of what she saw on June 7th, the day the woman vanished. She was on her porch in East Springfield enjoying the morning sunrise. She saw an older model Dodge van of moss green color pull into the driveway next door. A young blonde was driving. She looked just like Susie Streeter, whose picture had been in the newspaper and on television, and she looked scared. The woman on her porch could hear a man's voice say, don't do anything stupid. And she didn't report it for several days because she was too scared to come forward. And by the time she had, police were working other sightings of an older model Dodge van. Sometimes the color was dark blue or a dirty brown, depending on the time of day. One man told police he was sitting in the parking lot of a grocery store near Levitt's East Delmar home and saw a van with a young blonde in the driver's seat. She was waiting on someone in the store. He jotted down the license plate on a newspaper because he thought there was something strange about the van. But he had thrown the newspaper away when police had him hypnotized. He could remember only the first three digits. This is strange. If this, ca if this is true, then this seems like the story got conflated with the porch lady. Because supposedly she was the one that was hypnotized. In this article, it's saying that there was another witness who also saw her in the driver's seat. Which is strange because we never brought this up, Maxwell, in the other podcast. This is the first time I'm seeing this information that there was a second witness witnessing Susie Streeter in the driver's seat. Hmm. The other thing that's kind of weird, if you were kidnapping people, would you hide in the back with a gun or would you just like knock them out, tie them up and drive yourself? It's kind of... Yeah, because then somebody might recognize you and... Wait, you're saying it's smarter to let them drive? Because no, what no, if... no, I guess what I'm saying is like... Yeah, it's kind of stupid to do that because somebody might see her driving around or flag her down like, hey. What or what if she just gets an intentional, what's to stop her from just getting into an accident because then someone could help them? True. Or just ramming into a police car. <laughs> yeah. But then where are the other girls anyway? <laughs> we don't know if they were in the back or not. So he had thrown the newspaper away, and when police had him hypnotized, he could remember only the first three digits. We ran every registered van in the United States that matched that description, Warsham recalls. A moss green van, similar to the one the woman said she saw at sunrise, was parked in front of the police station for weeks with the hope someone else would remember seeing one like it around the time of the disappearance. Now here's the thing. How many police stations would go out and purchase a van that looked exactly like it just to try to jog people's memories? Like, this is a dedicated police force. We got to give them credit, Maxwell. So it was impossible to find that exact car with those three license I mean, plate digits? I we'll, mean, we'll have a dedicated podcast on everything to do with vans and vehicles because there's actually a lot of information, and there were a lot of tips covered. I mean, they went across, I think it said 21 states, this investigation transversed. Hmm. To this day, opinions differ on the van. Some officers believe a van was involved in the disappearance. Others are doubtful. And yet others say police never had enough information to say either way. For the families, the pain doesn't fade. Neither does the idea that maybe something could have been done differently. Maybes and what-ifs fill the minds of detectives. Could we have done something different? Probably, says Asher. You could point fingers, but that won't help find these three women. And beyond the infighting of 1992, detectives say they knew who they were working for. It was the family of Susie and Cheryl. It was Janice and Stu McCall. Within the first few weeks of the investigation, the McCall sat across the desk from 
then Sergeant Mark Webb, and played for him a tape of a public service announcement they made pleading for their daughter's return. When the tape ended, Webb struggled to retain his composure. I remember thinking, this wasn't someone who had their microwave stolen, Webb says. They had their baby girl stolen, and they wanted her back. We were responsible for getting her back. I'll never forget Janice looking at me in the eyes and saying, you have to promise me you'll bring my baby girl home. So that is the 10-year anniversary article. So it spanned pretty much all of the major facets of the case. And just from that alone, some people actually believe the police were involved in this one as well. Or someone posing as a police officer to get into the house. Either way, Webb, just from reading that right there, I don't think he would have said that if he was involved unless he's like the greatest mastermind genius criminal of all time. Because to fake that in that way, it's it's pretty strange. So I think unless there's evidence against him, he seems pretty solid, as do most of the police officers. The police chief, however, he was rumored to have met suspects at like diners and just talked with them and then cleared them. So we'll get into the exact suspects in the next episode, as well as other strange things. But just from the overview, what are your thoughts so far, Johnny? Do you think we can narrow it down to Cox or these grave robbers? Uh, or Janelle and her friends. There seem to be a lot of rabbit holes in this case as well. Plenty more to come, but just from what we've gone over so far, what are you thinking so far? So what is the case still open today? I believe technically, I believe it's still open. Yeah. What was Cox's alibis? I don't, I don't think there's ever been a real one. He just told his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend to say that he was with her at church that morning. And then supposing nobody followed up with that until in front of a grand jury, she testified that she had been coerced into that into making up the alibi under threat of him what where were you going with that maxwell i don't know a lot of usually yeah people with a background and and uh, a record they tend to do the same thing <laughs> or they tend to do bad things so I, i'm wondering where he was and he said a lot of crazy shit so yeah, he actually said he worked right in that area. Yeah. Before, in our previous episodes, we just regarded that as a rumor that was uncorroborated. It would be interesting if they actually got that from his uh, from his employer just to verify that because he could just be screwing around saying that. Mm, makes for a good movie. If uh... Why are you always talking about movies? <laughs> We're trying to do podcasts just, yeah, on real no. life. I'm just saying, like, if, like, because if you see this as a movie, like, he would be you know the biggest suspect and then it turns out to be the jealous friend or whatever you know that's <laughs> that's the movie line <laughs> all right well we hope you enjoyed another episode of mind shock true crime this is the springfield three series plenty more to come as well as our other series you can check those out on our main channel page and if you like our content, make sure you're subscribed. Hit the bell notification to get updates. And if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. And check us out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, and Patreon. Just check the link in the description. We'll catch you guys next time. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. <laughs> Sayonara. Did you hear about the uh, the Michael Myers that went and shot like uh, for Halloween? He was dressed up as Michael Myers, shot some people, and then like got away. What the heck? No. <laughs> well, who's Myers? 
<laughs> Michael Myers, the uh, you know Halloween movies. He wears uh, that mask. Oh, actually, yeah, I got one there. Third one. You never heard of the movie Halloween, Maxwell? I have. I think I saw the first one in parts. Is that the one with uh, what's her name? Uh, oh, okay. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis. It was actually pretty good, at least from what I hear, or from what I, um, not hear, but uh, 